Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Taya Obrecht on her latest novel... Inland. Taya Obrecht is the author of The Tiger's Wife, winner of the Orange Prize for Fiction, a finalist for the National Book Award and an international bestseller. She was born in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia and has lived in the United States since the age of 12. She currently lives in New York City and teaches at Hunter College. And Taya's second novel, Inland, we're going to be talking about today. Taya, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. So, first of all, how would you describe Inland? Um, it has been described as a Western... Uh, when I used to describe it to people uh, before it was published or before I even knew what I was doing, I would say that it's a Western but not a Western. And then things like a deconstructed Western if I wanted to be really obnoxious. So the, <laughs> there's a, a central story, uh, a sort of forgotten piece of history that you found which sort of influenced this book. But on a wider level than that, let's talk about perhaps why a Western in the first place. I think if you'd, if you'd asked me eight years ago when The Tiger's Wife came out whether I would go anywhere near these themes or this genre, I would have been, I would have been pretty incredulous. But I started, when I was hunting around for the story to write next, um, I had a lot of false starts, wrote a couple of, of books that got through the first draft, and then, and then I, I never took them any further than that because I wasn't connecting with the material in a real way. And you can really feel it when you're not, you know. So... I started spending a lot of time in the American West, in the mountain and the Southwest in particular, and I was very, very surprised by the feeling that it provoked in me. I've moved around a lot as a, as a young person. I grew up, I was born in the former Yugoslavia, but I grew up in Egypt and Cyprus and then various parts of the States. So home for me has never really been about place. But I was astonished at the feeling of homecoming that I experienced, particularly in Wyoming and particularly in Arizona. And it was, a pri- it was a surprise because it, it wasn't connected to any of the things that are normally affiliated with home for me, like, you know, people <laughs> and, uh, you know, cultural roots and, and that sort of thing. And the feeling of having come to yourself in this landscape is really strong when you're, when you're out there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of spiritual feeling, I think, and responsible in many ways for the ways that we mythologize and romanticize the American West. So I knew that as an immigrant... 
who's continuously learning about America and its history, that this was going to be something that I that I'd end up having to grapple with. And then I, I found my way to this story, which was a complete surprise. And so, tell us what that story is. It part, forms a central part of the narrative of this novel. Yes, I uh, I first heard the story on a podcast called Stuff You Missed in History mm-hmm. Class, which I probably shouldn't I probably shouldn't advertise. No, that that's podcast. okay. <laughs> Podcasting um, is a community. Exactly. Um, but it was framed in, in the context of this true campfire tale from Arizona at the turn of the century. And the tale was about something called the Red Ghost of Arizona, which starts with these two women who are on a homestead um, one evening alone and they have a violent confrontation with a large shaggy quadruped uh, that they can't identify and it's you know it's all horrifically violent and the quadruped continues to haunt the, the community for, for a while and gains this moniker the red ghost uh, and the podcast then went on to tie this real campfire tale to the even realer history of the United States Camel Corps, which was a project undertaken in the 1850s by the United States military. They brought camels over from the Ottoman Empire to serve as pack animals in the Southwest. And they landed in Texas and then staked uh, a wagon road which was, you know, which was pur- purported to be new, but actually had been there for hundreds of years. It was the Mojave Trail. A wagon road f- along the 35th parallel from New Mexico to the shores of the Colorado River along what is now known as Route 66. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard this story before and that it wasn't a wider part of this mythos that I had, that even I had grown up with in the Balkans, you know, of the, the, the American West and, and, and cowboy westerns in general. And there was something so intriguing to me about these young men who had come over with the camels from what was then the Ottoman Empire as, you know, parts of Yugoslavia that I had grown up in would have been too at the time. And so I became obsessed with it. And I think that that obsession, as is often the case in writing, led to some very, very sort of personal explorations of home and and what belonging means and what it means to try to assimilate. And, And yeah. And so there's a there's a character in the novel, uh, Haji Ali, who mm-hmm. you know seems simple enough to pronounce to me, but as was the case often, he ends up being called High Jolly That's right. over there in the in the West. He was a real figure. He was mm-hmm. one of these people that came over. So what do we know of his background? Uh, he was a man of Syrian and Greek origins who was born, they believe, in uh, Smyrna, uh, as it was called by by Greeks, or or Izmir, as it was called uh, in. Turkey, and he had uh, he had gone on the Hajj at some point in his early life, and, and changed his name from Philip Tedro to Haji Ali, um, and it was under this name that, that he came over with the camels. He had done some work with uh, with uh, animal husbandry as, as a young man uh, in the military, and what we know of him, you know, I think it's it's pretty clear that he was illiterate certainly in English. Um, he never left any primary sources by his own hand, but he appears in the backgrounds of, of other people's diaries and, and, and in these sort of various newspaper articles where he yeah, I think he had a tendency to um to come into newspaper offices long after the Camel Corps had, had collapsed and, and, and failed, just to remind people that this was a thing. Um, we know he had a prideful temper. Um, he's known to have driven a carriage pulled by two camels into a picnic in Los Angeles because he wasn't invited in a very sort of maleficent move. So we know certain things about him, but I, I was deeply, deeply interested in, in filling in the gaps because it, it fascinated me what it must have been like for someone who's an outsider to who has come 
into one particular culture, right? To be a convert mm-hmm. to a religion, I think, is, is never mind the sort of spiritual implications of, of how one comes to religion and comes to faith. That's something else. But to learn the customs, the rules, um, to try to belong to a new religion, I think, is, a, is a, an undertaking of a lifetime, right? And he had been pretty fresh into Islam when he came over here. So he was a newcomer twice over Mm -hmm. to two new lives. And I was so fascinated by what he must have grappled with, having grown up in one empire and then arriving in the States and sort of seeing the work of another empire beginning to build. Yeah, and uh, he's buried in Quartzsite, Arizona, under a pyramid with a camel on top, and I have been to his tomb. Uh, But someone that did leave primary sources is um, another real character that appears in the novel, Edward Beale, Mm -hmm. um, who leads the leader of the expedition. Um, and you've been able to use his his yeah. writing as, as sort of research. So tell me about his writing. He wrote a uh, uh, Edward Fitzgerald Beale was a, was a war hero and the superintendent of the of the Camel Corps. Um, and he <laughs> his task was to stake this this road and to write in great detail about how the camels were performing in this very very specific task. And you can see one of the fascinating things about his diary, which is a military document um, and in the military archives and, and is therefore very, very meticulous about certain things. He writes at first with sort of suspicion and, and you know some skepticism about how this is all going to work out, but then he becomes deeply attached to the camels and really awestruck by their ability to withstand uh, you know, environmental pressure and uh, eat anything. And so his, his diary is a fascinating document of, of this growing attachment. It's also a fascinating document, uh, as is the diary of his, uh, the, the only other primary source, the uh, diary of his assistant, who was a young man named May Humphrey Stacy, in how the young men who came over were both seen and, and treated. You know, Again, they appear in the background and they're often sort of cited as, as scurrying around busily, you know, in, in these sort of extremely racist terms. Not shocking for the time, I suppose, uh, but still pretty pretty tough to read now. And they're completely absent from the diary of, of May Humphrey Stacy. And I was fascinated by how uh, I became really devoted to the idea of taking these episodes that were these sort of side quest episodes outlined by Beale's assistant and writing the rewriting them from the point of view of the Cameliers, mm-hmm. who were clearly there. They just weren't cited for uh, reasons that are obvious. The book follows the story of two main protagonists. We'll come to Nora later on. But um, Laurie, tell us who he is, first of all. Laurie is a uh, young man who's brought over to New York from the Balkans by his father. And they're on the run. Um, And he has sort of these very, very hazy memories of, of his childhood and uh, hazy memories of, of New York as well. And his father dies, and, and Lurie serves a stint as a grave robber in the cemeteries of the city, um, which earns him two things. It earns him the ability to see dead people, and it earns him a trip on an orphan train to Missouri, where he ends up joining an outlaw gang whose exploits turn violent and then land him with a marshal on his trail, and he ends up taking shelter with the Camel Corps. And, and I want to talk about his the central relationship he has with his camel Burke, which is, you know, central to the story. Not least in the fact that his parts of the book, glorious parts of the book, are a first person narration, which he is narrating the story to his camel. That's right. And I want to talk about <laughs> that central relationship, but also why you made that choice. Um, yeah, I, I think so much of Lurie's life is about 
It's about being caught between the decision to run and the decision to stay. And the point from which he's narrating the story to Burke, he's trying to convince Burke to make one more run. And I, I think that it became, you know, I, I wrote the story, you, you draft in, in, in many different ways, I think, when you're sort of first getting into a story. So you, I wrote it for myself in, in this very haphazard way to understand what Lurie's life looked like. But I knew that that wouldn't be the mechanism that he was speaking from within the story. It was very clear to me that it would have to be in first person. It was very clear to me that he had to be making an appeal. And the only relationship that really exists for him home is Burke. You know, he's been traveling with, with this camel for many, many years. They have a very, very special bond, which is not just of traveling companions, but of being being the way in which Lurie and probably also Burke <laughs> see themselves, uh, the context for, for in which they see themselves as who they are. Um, and so he's trying to convince Burke to, uh, to keep going. Uh, even though they've been on the run for a very long time. And as you mentioned, Lurie is, you know, he originally hailed from the Balkans and, you know, a lot of the characters. And the, the story is, is, you know, it's fundamentally a story of the immigrant experience in America. And obviously you came from the Balkans yourself to, mm-hmm. to live in America. And I wonder if, to what extent, that experience of your own gave you, a, you know, fresh eyes to look upon the story of the Western, which is a genre which is, you know, fundamentally filled with cliche there are certain things we expect mm-hmm. to happen in a western story which you've been able to have fun with sort of overturning in this book thank you very much um i, I hope so i'm i'm a fan of the genre in, in and i think it i think that as a piece as as mythological work i think it's fascinating how powerful it is um and how much we expect of it right like mm-hmm. how how many cliches of it are so readily uh, uh, recognizable to us but i think that one of the first things that became apparent to me when I when I started writing the book was the isolation of, of these two characters, of, of Lurie and of, of Nora. And isolation to me always signals, you know, plenty of time to reflect on, on, on feeling, <laughs> feelings. And uh, as an immigrant, I think one of the most fascinating experiences as I've grown older and sort of processed ways in which you begin to assimilate versus ways in which you always feel like an outsider is the relationship to language and the way that you always feel, or at least I always feel as an immigrant, and I think many immigrants do, that that there's some aspect of the culture or the language that is inaccessible to you. You can get down almost to the bottom layer, but never quite all the way down. And this is the first thing that draws Lurie to the Camilleers. He hears traces of that furthest layer in their language, something recognizable that that doesn't have anything to do with, that has to do with with a distant home and with the past. And so I I wanted to dwell on these universal moments of being called toward home and being trapped between certainty and uncertainty that I think are, are, you know, must be the case now for immigrants and must have been the case for immigrants 150 years ago too.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Taya Obrecht, and we're talking about her novel Inland. And Taya, this brings us to Nora. And again, women, I guess, are present often in... Western stories, but as ancillary characters, you know, prostitutes perhaps, Mm -hmm. or balcony women as they are called in this this novel. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about the idea of of, of centering this Western story around Nora, a woman character. Yeah, I, um, I felt very, very lucky when I started writing this book for many reasons. And one was that history had set certain terms, right? It was very apparent that there would have to be Two narrative lines, one would have to be the wanderer arriving for an encounter, and the other would have to be somebody waiting for that wanderer. And I knew that it was going to be a woman. Um, It was a woman in the original campfire tale. And so a lot of the pleasure of of initially writing the first draft of this book was figuring out who Nora was and, and what her day was like. Because... That's where the questions of this book actually started for me. I had an image of this woman by a creek with her son looking at what he claims are tracks that she can't identify. And everything in Nora's narrative sprang from there. And she's a very she's a very isolated person. And uh, she's a very you know she's been described in reviews as prickly. People describe her as prickly, and she's you know she she, she is she's a, she's an she's an unpleasant person. And I wanted to, to play with that too. You know, women when they do appear in westerns are are the the angels of the the narrative, right? They're the sort of the goal around which the plot revolves. It's always rescue the woman from you know terrible bandits of color and uh, set everything right again in this very white way. Um, and uh, I wanted to to spend time with a character who was deeply over the landscape in which uh, she was trying to survive and who had set herself by way of opinion and illusion on a path that was disastrously wrong. And that was, uh, it was challenging and fun. Yeah, I mean, you said, you know, the central image of, of Nora and her son stood by a creek, but the, the central point here is that creek is dry. Yeah. They are in a situation where, there, you know, there is a, a, a long-standing drought and they have no water and Nora's husband has disappeared, basically, in search of water. 
Describe what else, like the, the sort of family situation, where they are located. They're in, uh, that's right, they're in Arizona Territory in 1893. They're in a town called Amargo, which has been the county seat of this very sort of parched little county for a long time. And they've just received a challenge from a neighboring town called Ash River for the county seat. Uh, which will prove disastrous for the town, of course, as is always the case in, in Westerns and in history. Um, they are in year two of, of, a, of a terrible drought. Her husband is, in, is the newspaper man uh, of Amargo, and his mission has been to stand up to the rival newspaper from Ash River, which is sort of owned uh, none too subtly by the cattle baron who's trying to, um, who's trying to wrest uh, land and, and uh, narrative control for the town, um, and Nora has three sons, Toby, who's the youngest, who's at home with her, and her uh, elder two sons, Dolan and Rob, are, she's not really sure where they are when the book starts. And you mentioned that, you know, people have described her as prickly, but, you know, not only is she in this terrible, life-threatening situation, but, you know, she's lost a daughter in the past, her husband's feckless, her sons are... Quite annoying. The help is terrible. She's got plenty of reasons to be <laughs> the help to be terrible. Prickly. Yes, that's right. That's right. Her uh, her <laughs> she's she in her in the house living with her is a is a young woman named Josie, um, who is her husband's uh, niece cousin, uh, who is a self purported clairvoyant and who speaks to the dead on behalf of the bereaved. Um, and Nora finds this galling to the point of complete outrage because this power has enabled Josie to really bond with young Toby, who believes her in everything. And Nora is particularly annoyed, despite the fact that for the last 17 years she's been carrying on what she insists is an imaginary conversation with the imagined ghost of her dead daughter. Um, so, yeah. Things are tight at home. Back on the ranch, things are, <laughs> things are closing in. Well, I wanted to talk about this this relationship that she has with Josie because, you know, if Nora is perhaps, for this type of novel, an unusual sort of hardy pioneer woman, Josie seems to represent more the typical woman that we would expect to see in one of these stories, beyond the, the clairvoyance, which yeah. we'll, we'll come back to in a bit. But, um, you know, in terms of she's, you know, she's a bit... Out of her element, she's a bit useless, yeah. um, a bit helpless, yeah. uh, and in need of you know need of men to look after her, basically, which Nora seems not to be. Yeah, Nora der- derides and disdains this, and I think that so much of the, the narrative too is is um, I think a lot of where I had fun playing with Nora's relationship with Josie is the reliability of Nora's vision of Josie, because so much of what we get in that narrative is filtered through the way Nora feels about things. Um, And she feels very, very strongly about Josie's helplessness and clairvoyance and the fact that Josie seems to, you know, curry more favor with men than than Nora's ever needed to have. You know, there's there's a real sort of sense of reckoning there uh, uh, about her own, the way she sees not only Josie, but herself. And then things take a turn sort of toward the middle of the book. And she realizes that she's been a little bit mistaken about Josie's standing in the household and sense of self as well. Well, also, in terms of, I want to talk about the, you know, the clairvoyance, the elements of the supernatural in the book, because it's not really giving anything away to say that, you know, Josie is fundamentally right. Right. um, Because Laurie is also able to see the dead everywhere he goes. You also use sort of elements of the supernatural in The Tiger's Wife as well. and, And I wanted to talk about what interests you in that, but also particularly in this book, 
what the dead represent, sure. or the other living as they're, as they're known in the book. Yes. I, I think it's a surprise to me that, you know, I, I think that, that every book is a, is a voyage of discovery, and one of the things I've discovered is that, gosh, ghosts really seem to come out of the woodwork for me. <laughs> um, you try to write something that's realist, and it's like, whoops. But, yeah, the I think ghosts in... I've noticed that I have a tendency to write about characters who are at the crossroads of belief. There, there always is in, in my work a question about whether it is better to be a realist or a believer in something that is greater than meets the eye or more complicated than meets the eye. And I think it's a question that I'm going to continue to grapple with probably in my work for a while yet. Um, I don't see it going anywhere. <laughs> Um, in fact, it's already begun to surface in the next book, and that's that's very exciting and horrifying, and, and you know to discover about yourself. Oh, you've not really moved on from this question at all. But in this book, the dead, uh, I think they they serve a very personal function for Lurie and 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 Nora and, and to some degree Josie as well. I think that that in a in a world in a situation in which people are isolated, and these characters find themselves so isolated from the outside world and from community, the dead are a way to reflect on, on history. The West, to me, when I'm out there, feels profoundly haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that places that are hubs of tremendous historical violence always are. And uh, you know, when you think about the ways that we consider the afterlife a place of transcendence and rest, which is dependent upon the sort of cor- rituals and corporeal uh, stasis <laughs> all of which are supposed to lead to this great this sense of peace it seems really really impossible that a place as, as violent as encased in violence as the American West as encased in turbulence and turmoil offers any kind of rest at all to the dead and so I thought that the kind of turmoil that affects the living must also affect the dead as well and everybody would just be haunted to the gills you know one of the functions of historical fiction is to is to comment on the present day mm-hmm. in some sort of way, whether or not that's intentional or not. And you know, reading this book, I was struck by you know ideas of climate change, perhaps, and as you've already mentioned, you know, the immigrant experience in America, um, not least, uh, obviously, the you know High Jolly and, and the Camel party but also you know Laurie as it turns out is at least nominally a Muslim character and also of course there are there are Mexican characters in this book who have at this particular period of time are not immigrants but have literally had the border of Mexico moved on they've been incorporated helplessly into the United States and again seems to be something that speaks to you know what's going on at the moment in America. And I wonder how many of these ideas were in your head when you were writing the book. Um, I think it was... I was surprised... The first draft of the book was was finished, I think, in September of 2016. Um, (laughs) Then November came. As I did research for this book, I was amazed and then continued to be amazed. And then sort of amazed by my own amazement, because don't I know this already, you know, um, at how many of the conversations that were being had uh, and how many of the conflicts that were being had in in the 1850s are still conflicts that we're having today. And actually, I I suppose what what amazed me most was not the content of 
the conflict, but rather the tone of it. You know, the fact that even even this notion of warring newspapers and, and who gets to tell the story first mm-hmm. and, and frame it a particular way, this notion of fear-mongering and the way occupation, when it, when it works, centers a very different... Um, it creates a different societal center and then invites certain members of society to try to get closer to it. You know, the, this, this notion of assimilation, that's all it is. It's, it's empire conscripting people who are never, ever going to be at center into the illusion that, like, maybe if you, you know, if you turn on your brethren and if you do this dirty work for us, we will let you get closer to the middle. It was disheartening stuff, and it was very much on my mind as I went into editing the book, for sure. Can I get you to read this bit? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read from... Um, so this is, uh, this is Lurie's opening chapter. Um, it's called The Missouri. When those men rode down to the fording place last night, I thought us done for. Even you must realize how close they came. Their smell, the song of their bridles, the whites of their horses' eyes... True to form, blind though you are, and with that shot still irretrievable in your thigh, you made to stand and meet them. Perhaps I should have let you. It might have averted what happened tonight, and the girl would be unharmed. But how could I have known? I was unready, disbelieving of our fate, and in the end could only watch them cross and ride up the wash away from us in the moonlight. And wasn't I right to wait, for habit, if nothing else? I knew you had flight in you yet. You still do, as do I, as I have all my life since long before we fell in together when I first came round to myself, six years old and already on the run, wave-rocked with my father in the bunk beside me, and all around the hiss of water against the hull. It was my father running back then, though from what I never knew. He was thin, I think. Young, perhaps? A blacksmith, perhaps, or some other hard-laboring man who never caught more rest than he did that swaying month when night and day went undiffered, and there was nothing but the creak of rope and pulley somewhere above us in the dark. He called me Sine, and some other name I've struggled lifelong to recall. Of our crossing, I remember mostly foam veins and the smell of salt, and the dead, of course, outlaid in their white shrouds side by side along the stern. And uh, this is from Nora's section. This is the opening part of Nora's narrative. Uh, It's set in Amargo, Arizona Territory in 1893. Toby came running back, empty-handed, to tell her he'd found more tracks. Down by the creek this time. All right, Nora said. Show me. She reined up and followed her youngest into the gulch. The trail narrowed between high bluffs and led out among the black imbrications of an ancient riverbed before winding for a quarter mile through cottonwoods and down to the shore. Little remained of the stream now, save glossy September mud and the wakes of what few salamanders had managed to evade Toby. He pointed to where his bucket had dropped. Them's the tracks. Those are, Nora said. It relieved her to see his hair growing back. Through three sons and seventeen years of motherhood, shaving had borne out as the only successful campaign against lice, but its effects were decidedly punitive. Toby looked like a deserter from some urchin militia sentenced to bear the badge of his dishonor. What if this time history should fail him, leaving him bald forever? He made a sorry little man as it was, too thin for seven, soft and golden and clued up with doubt, prone to his father's wilding turn of mind. This business with the tracks had rooted deep, displacing all his other worries and earning him the derision of his brothers, Rob and Dolan, who wouldn't brook a child's ghost story now that they were so adamantly men. The only solution they were charitable enough to entertain, just say the word and we'll bait it, Tobe, ran thoroughly against his inclinations, for Toby had no great wish to see the beast, merely to be believed in the matter of its existence. Last week, 
The boys had taken him out to the abandoned Flores claim, cited the track's initial manifestation, to cure him of his nonsense. By what means, Nora could not guess, though she had managed to refrain from warning them to mind his bad eye. They were her boys. Emmett's sons. Recent outbursts aside, they were upright and vigilant, careful with others in general, and with Toby in particular. Still, she had waited on the porch until they reappeared in the red boil of twilight, two horses dragging long shadows. Dolan bobbing stoutly along and Rob a few yards ahead and so starved looking at sixteen she wondered how he was managing to keep Toby upright in the saddle before him with just one arm. Well, she called, did you bare your teeth to whatever's out there? So I've been talking to Tay Obrecht. We've been talking about her second novel, Inland, which is out now in the UK from Weedenfield and Nicholson. Taya, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.